Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. gentlemen welcome to the show i've got to say right now uh my co-host and i are you know we're we're dressed pretty well we're we're dressed comfortably and we're sitting in a studio that has some great air conditioning my name is ben ben my name is noah which you know and well, what's that what's that stank <laughs> what's that stank what is that stank? did we put some stank on it i, I don't know i mean you you mentioned the air conditioning but yeah. it's feeling a little stagnant in here today mm-hmm. um and i'm wondering uh was it you who was it no it wasn't it wasn't me but we do share this studio with other people perhaps it is i who hath dealt it for i hath smelt it this is something that has very little to do with today's episode but it's an interesting question <laughs> it's got as much to do with today's episode as anything you know, no 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 what i'm about to bring up what have you noticed uh Perhaps you know, or you, our super producer, Casey Pegram, ladies and gentlemen. Have you guys ever noticed when you walk into a room, you'll, you'll sense a smell and it may be very good. It may be very bad, but then within a matter of a few seconds or minutes, it sort of dissipates and you don't notice it. Does that happen to you? You know, it's true. If I've like, for example, let's say I haven't done laundry in a couple of days and I have the laundry basket in my room, it's sort of, you know, uh, becomes the base level of the smell of the room. But if I've stayed overnight somewhere else, uh-huh. hubba hubba, and then I come back the next day, I'm like, ho, oh, laundry day, son. <laughs> what unfresh hell is this, Indeed. right? So we know that this is a phenomenon that a lot of us have experienced, but the fact remains that some smells are so strong that yeah. you, you don't forget them no. or you can't, you can't teach your nose to ignore them. And today's episode is about a stink that was uh, far beyond what you would normally consider smelly. What either I or Ben hath dealt right. previously. That's up for debate. And, and likely uh, far beyond what we have smelt. Indeed. What, what what we're talking about here is something called 
the great stink of London. So someone got upset about something. Is that what you're saying? And <laughs> they, they, made, they made a fuss. <laughs> oh, if only uh, there were fusses involved, right? Yeah. There were uh, there were fusses involved, and the city was in crisis. But also, literally, it was a stink, a stench, a reek, a miasma. Oh, here we go of uh, feces, mm-hmm. cooking smells. Think of think of city smells. You know, right. New York City, for example. Think of the way it smells walking down the street. The way you can pass through so many different aromas mm-hmm. as you travel, right? Like one corner might smell like boiled peanuts, and then you get hot dogs, mm-hmm. and then you you get dog crap, and right. then you know urine and, and stale beer. Mm-hmm. Well, think about that, but combined with stagnant, rotting feces buried in open pits, and also livestock corpses, right from the butchery. Mm-hmm. Possibly dead bodies uh, due to disease outbreaks. Mm-hmm. Like cholera. Right. Like uh, we covered in our previous episode on London's train for the dead. They were literally piling bodies upon one another because there was not room in the, you know, in the conventional cemeteries or morgues. So what we're saying, with all due respect to the great city of London, is that it used to be filthy. Yeah. I mean, those those uh, delightful little street urchins in Oliver, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> there's no way they could have done those sweet dance moves, you know, with that with that funk in the air. They would have fallen over dead from just pure hyperventilating exhaustion. And we're talking about the 1800s, mm-hmm. but this all kind of came to a head, didn't it, Ben, in a particular summer of stank? Yes, yes, you're absolutely right, Noel. In the infamous and uh, stench-ridden summer of 1858, London was, uh, I don't want to say paralyzed, but maybe traumatized is a fair word, by a pervasive smell um, that was flooding the streets and wasn't moving from the town. Uh, The Temperature was around 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius. And what people noticed was that this smell was not class-based. It didn't matter if you were wealthy or if you were poor or if you lived in a particular neighborhood. Anything near, especially anything near the Thames, was going to stink. And there wasn't much you could do about it. And, and part of the problem goes into the the skyrocketing urban growth at the time. Absolutely. And the lack of a municipal sewer system. Yeah. I mean, as we're saying, they did have sort of storm drain type situations Mm -hmm. that would uh, essentially drain rain runoff back out into the river. Mm -hmm. But with that overflow of human bodies, alive live ones that poop, Mm -hmm. that was all becoming... Waste, human waste. Right. Instead of rainwater, it was wastewater because, you know, some people, the wealthier people, had, you know, privies or there were even flush toilets. We'll get into that a little mm-hmm. later. And poor people especially, you know, it wasn't even into poor people, rich people divide. They didn't have a sewer system, so that waste had to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that somewhere were these cesspits. Of which there were in the neighborhood of 200,000 
in London alone. London is a sprawling metropolis. Yes, yeah, a sprawling and at this point dirty metropolis. In an article called Solving the Great Stink, which we will not read the full headline yet because it contains spoilers, right? Mm -hmm. So for now, it's just the article named Solving the Great Stink by Ella Morton. And in this, uh, Morton introduces readers to one of the coolest names you and I found in the course of our research, right? Uh, because these, these cesspits are filling up with fecal matter, right? And there's only so much room in your average cesspit. Six feet. <laughs> six feet. In case that comes up on your next uh, blind date. Yeah, six feet of, of, of poo potential there. Mm -hmm. That might be important to your Tinder conversation. Uh, yeah. So th there's a definitive amount. There's a threshold. And at some point, these pits need to be emptied out. It's literally a dirty job, and someone has to do it. And that's where we learn about the Nightmen. Oh! <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, we are always sunny and Philadelphia fans here. Casey, are you a fan of that show? Yeah? Oh, we, we got a definitive nod. Yeah, it was emphatic. That was not one of his phoned-in nods. Mm. But these nightmen were real people who had a very demanding job. They had to go into these cesspits working under the cover of darkness and empty these things physically. So this is hard physical labor and the stench isn't just inconvenient at this point. It's dangerous. Yeah, and these nightmen um, armed with nothing but buckets, uh, rope, and a go-getter attitude, I guess, <laughs> would, you know, en enter these pits. Um, and, yeah, that smell was actually physically damaging. It could give you cough. It could actually cause, you know, burning of your eyes, um, you know, watering of the eyes, like all kinds of – you could get infections, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, it was it was really, really bad. It was just – and especially when they're kind of down in it. Like that, you know, Ugh. this was not not a job for the faint of heart. Yeah. These were kind of heroes in a way. They were heroes and they were also working against nigh impossible odds. No matter how assiduously or regularly they emptied these cesspits, what was happening is that there were just too many people adding to the waste and they could barely contain it. And let's say they weren't able to empty all the cesspits completely, right? It's very likely at this time. And what happens is that these cesspits start baking under the high summer temperatures. Yeah, that's right. Um, the sun would get up to around 118 degrees during the summer, which is like West Coast desert temperatures, you know? And just think about that baking, putrefying cesspit. Um, not to mention that it would leach into the soil, mm -hmm. into the groundwater or whatever, and then make its way into the Thames, which was London's primary supply of drinking water. Yes. I am so, so glad you mentioned that because we found something that surprised us. Or I don't want to speak for both of us, but I, I was surprised uh, that, that surprised us when it came to the history of medicine at the time mm. because, you know, we we mentioned briefly in our episode on London's uh, Train for the Dead uh, that there were outbreaks of cholera in London. But we, we'd like to give you a little more detail there to, to set the stage because this wasn't just an occasional one person is sick in one neighborhood thing, right? 
No, no. Um, around 40,000 people died of cholera in London alone between 1831 and 1866. And the thing was, nobody knew not only did they not know what caused it, mm-hmm. they had absolutely no idea how to treat it. And the prevailing theory at the time was this thing called miasma theory that even, you know, medical luminaries like Florence Nightingale were all about. Yeah. And this was the notion that you got cholera from the from the funk alone, the mm-hmm. smell. Like if you can smell it, that means that you are in an invisible cloud of disease known as miasma. If you smelt it, you felt it. Right. There you go. There you go. But that was not true. That was clearly, now that we have the benefit of uh, looking back in time, it was clearly not the case. Uh, But it was widely believed by luminaries of the age. Uh, There was a fellow named Edwin Chadwick who wrote a report on the sanitary condition of the laboring population of Great Britain in 1842, and he argued exactly this. He argued that noxious smells were responsible for disease, and the real problem, he said, with cholera and these other uh, outbreaks was uh, a matter of ventilation and He said in a parliamentary committee meeting in 1846, all smell is, if it be intense, immediate acute disease. And eventually we may say that by depressing the system and rendering it susceptible to the action of other causes, all smell is disease. Which is a pretty, pretty bold and definitive statement, especially considering that it's, you know, not true. No, it's it's not true. And they, like I said, they didn't know how to treat it either. So treatments ranged from opiates to things like bloodletting, uh, bleeding people, burning their skin. Mm. Um, I'm getting some of these uh, facts from a really cool article called 10 Amazing Facts about <laughs> cholera and the Great Stink of London from 5-Minute History. Um, and then there are some more uh, gentle cures, some more homeopathic things like using camphor or a syrup of tomato. Uh, some of these came from a book called T.J. Ritter's Mother's Remedies. And those are more like folkloric kind of uh, homeopathic remedies. But you know, none of this stuff worked. The, the opiates probably made you feel better, I guess. Sure. It's because you were super high. But I guess gin might do the same thing for people. This is very true. And the thing I want to mention here to jump off what you said about the, that if you contain the smell, you can contain the spread of the contamination. Mm-hmm. That is couldn't be farther from the truth, especially in the way that they were trying to contain the smell by dumping all of this waste into their water supply. Right. They were trying to get it out of their vicinity, but it was coming back to them in the way that was actually infecting them because cholera is waterborne. In yes. This case. Yeah. And also just pollution in general. One very important thing about putting – waste into the Thames is that it is tidal, which means, for instance, if you took the corpse of a horse that you had for some reason and you threw it in the Thames, right, as the tide's going out, then tide comes back in Mm -hmm. and the water remains contaminated. But because they were so focused on the idea that smell was the cause and the indicator of this, you know, this epidemic and this outbreak, they did not focus on a point that Noel just raised there, which is the drinking water. We've mentioned this a couple times Mm -hmm. already, and we are not alone. There's a character, a a, a real person, sorry, an anesthesiologist of the time named Jon Snow, spelled the same way as the Game of Thrones guy, 
Did he know nothing? It or? turns out he knew at least one thing. Okay. What was that one thing? <laughs> it was one thing is that he is, according to death and miasma in Victorian London, an obstinate belief. You can see the idea there, uh, by a lecturer named Stephen Holliday. Snow had a very important contribution. He argued that polluted water rather than air was the principal cause of cholera epidemics and no other experts believed him for some time. He got a, he got a, their version of the cool story bro treatment. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Snow wasn't just, you know, holding a glass of water to the light and looking at it and saying, hey, I think that's a turd in there or something. What he was doing was mapping out pollution-free water sites, polluted water sites, and the spread of disease, specifically cholera. 
1857, he showed that the number of deaths from cholera among customers at the Southwark Water Company was six times higher than among customers of the Lambeth Water Company. And he attributed this difference to the fact that the Lambeth Company drew its water from Tim's Ditton above the Teddington Lock, where there was no danger from sewage in the tideway. So because they were drinking, you know, non-sewage-riddled water. Yeah. They were less likely to get cholera. Genius. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm kidding, but at the time, it was a mystery. And it was still ignored, but but all was not lost because there was progress in terms of sanitation, right? Like earlier you had mentioned that not everybody was just, um, I don't know, squatting by the roadside. Yeah, no, there were definitely different um, uh, calibers of, of restroom facilities. In fact, it wasn't until doing the research for this episode that I discovered, many of you may already know this, uh, that the fl- that flush toilets were a thing in this period in Victorian England. They were quite ornate, in fact. Um, I found some images of flush toilets in that article I mentioned from 5-Minute History, and they look more like – like fine china than mm-hmm. than something you would squat on uh to relieve yourself and they had those nice pull handles on the chain you know that, that are up top mm-hmm. um all that technology was around because it was uh, actually invented by a guy named Sir John Harrington he came up with the original design for the flush toilet. And I'm looking at it right here on historicuk.com, an article called The Throne of Sir John Harrington mm. by Ellen Castillo. And the uh, illustration of his design is, is very, very much similar to what we still have today. Mm-hmm. It's got that that pee trap at the bottom mm-hmm. so that water doesn't stagnate or, you know, what I'm the, the smell doesn't go the smell. up. Yeah. That's what it is. That It, it creates mm-hmm. a layer of water in that crook mm-hmm. because that's what guards against the smell. And it has sort of a bobber kind of situation, um, very similar, a little more crude. Uh, but the middle class loved these things. Mm-hmm. They still do. Yeah, I'm pretty pro-sanitation myself. Yeah, now the new thing is the Japanese toilets. They haven't improved on the flush part. Now it's just the stuff that it does to your butt. It's like a whole experience, though. It's it's not just a bidet function. It'll play music for you. Yeah. You know, you can choose the direction of rotation of the water. <laughs> no way, really. The temperature. Oh, yeah. I yeah. know about the temperature. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've uh, had the, the privilege of sitting upon <laughs> a quite, a quite delightful one. And yeah, you can go clockwise, counterclockwise. It's more like a massage chair than it is, um, a lavatory. But I digress. <laughs> so the flush toilet was huge uh-huh. among the middle class who could afford it. Sure. And you know, the middle class, they, you know, weren't mega wealthy. But, but they were like merchants. They were they merchants. Owned property. They could afford the finer things, you know, ish, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the gap between rich and poor was quite wide. The fact there was a middle class at all, you know, they mm-hmm. were head and tails above the very poor people. So even that gap was massive. Sure. But the gap between the middle class and the aristocracy, also massive. Mm-hmm. But these toilets were flushing practically into the streets. Or like into these pits, right? Yeah, because there was no sewer system. No. It's kind of like having a phone that doesn't connect to a network, except instead of the sounds of your voice through a phone line, you know, it's it's excrement. See, in 1846, Parliament passed this law called the Nuisances Removal and Diseases Prevention Act, um, which also went by the cholera bill. And it encouraged people to keep their homes 
as spotlessly clean as possible to help get rid of the smell. Mm-hmm. So the idea of this flush toilet was that it would carry the waste away from your home. Mm-hmm. You know, but like we know, it went somewhere. And uh, it actually made things way worse. Right, because there was still not a... There was still not a decent transit system. There was not a purification system of any sort. And as we mentioned before, since the Thames is tidal, what goes around comes back, you know, not pet cemetery style, but still in a very disturbing way. I feel like I'm always just trying to work pet cemetery into references. You know, that movie ruined me, right, Ben? I know. I'm sorry, man. I promise I at least won't do the accent. But perhaps I'm being unfair because they did have something like a transit system for this sort of a proto-sewer, but it just went to the river, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, it was it was kind of more designed to deal with the uh, overflow from rain, you know, stormwater. Right. And that was – and then it would just bring it back out to the river. But it was not designed to deal with – uh, six feet of, of stank. human stank. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, because of that cholera bill and the, the notion that if we carry the stink away, we're less likely to get this fatal disease, mm-hmm. people flush their toilets way more than they should. And they flushed out that proto-sewer mm-hmm. way more than they should, which led to much more sewage going out into the river and then back in to the drink. Yeah, so gross. So this <laughs> this also comes to a head. We've got cholera. We've got other diseases. We've got increasingly panicked public sectors. And this comes to a head in Parliament, where in 1858, in this time, they are so affected by the smell that they cannot stay in the building. And they're taking these desperate MacGyver-like measures yeah. To to try to keep the smell out. Like what? Uh, they use a lime chloride or a chloride of lime and apply it to the curtains by the windows. Mm. Like soak the curtains mm. in the stuff? Yeah, no dice. No, it didn't work, did it? Didn't work. No. Didn't work. Well, poop rose by any other name still smells like poop, Ben. Yes, yeah. And they said, we cannot – we have no idea what what we can do here. They could barely gather their wits enough to hold a meeting. And there are there are anecdotes you can see where one of the people who's in charge of cleanliness in in the building says that he can no longer be responsible for what's happening. Yeah, I mean, how how can you be expected to pontificate when you know your nostrils are filled with this overwhelming? Foul smell. I want to add one little thing to – you mentioned um, uh, John Snow figuring out that the cholera was waterborne. There was another dude that had an interesting uh, role to play, a little a little scientist by the name of Michael Faraday, who mm-hmm. you may know from uh, uh, the TV show Lost. Right, or the Faraday cage. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that more. Um, no spoilers, though, for Lost on Ridiculous History. I yeah, wouldn't do that to you. We burned that bridge on our other show. It's true. But Faraday, there's a great quote from him from that five-minute history article where he, he did some tests. He took some samples, um, and he described the situation as such. Near the bridges, the feculence rolled up in clouds so dense they were visible at the surface. The whole river was, for the time, a real sewer. Michael Faraday. Feculence. God, that's a beautiful word. It really is. For a horrific thing. 
So Parliament realized that they could not ignore this. They couldn't keep the stereotypical stiff upper lip of the aristocracy. They had to fix this problem. Well, it was a, I mean, it was affecting them directly. I mean, you could argue <laughs> this, this is the kind of thing that's easy for politicians to get behind. Um, a, because this is nothing controversial about wanting to get rid of this problem. This is affecting everyone. People are dying by the thousands. And the prince had to cancel his pleasure cruise. <laughs> oh, no. On the Thames. What's a young monarch to do? Oh, boy. Tut, so tut. Things got serious, Ben. Yes, yes, you're absolutely correct, my friends, because there had been plans in place for a comprehensive sewage system or sewerage system. Sewerage. Sewerage. It's tough. It's we have tough. to say it that way, right? Yeah, of course. Sewerage. We absolutely have to say it that way. Yes, yes, with that accent. Uh, this plan had been proposed by a fellow named Joseph Bazalgette, and he had been pitching this for a little while. But finally, due to the great stink, Parliament approved a bill to combat this. And it took them less than 18 days, which is actually pretty fast for Imagine them. Imagine that, though. I mean, if you're going to get something done quick, let's stop the – feces from flowing through our streets freely. Yeah, you know? we have to emphasize it stank the entire time and, you know, it's it's like one long fart joke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's kind of what this episode is. Ben. <laughs> um, this guy, Bazalgette, was a civil engineer, right? Right. He was a civil engineer who played a vital role in honestly saving the city. That's That's not hyperbole for us to describe it this way. In an article called Construction of London's Victorian Sewers, The Vital Role of Joseph Bazalgette, an author named G.C. Cook gives us a brief introduction. So Joseph Bazalgette was born in 1819. At the time, he was the chief municipal engineer to the Metropolitan Board of Works, or MBW. And when Parliament was passing the blame or trying to pass the buck to see who who they could scapegoat for this or who they could blame for it, uh, members of Parliament directly said, you know, this is the job of the Metropolitan Board of Works. Not us. Right. It's these guys. And so he finally got some attention to his elaborate planned sewerage system. It had three objectives. One, waste disposal. Two, land drainage. And three, introduction of a safe water supply system. And that made it a, you know, that was a big difference in comparison to earlier plans or existing infrastructure. And this man was a wizard because he actually added a fourth thing, which was beautification. Mm-hmm. Who'd have thought that putting in a sewer would actually make London, like, look prettier? There were a lot of things that came from this job that added a lot of um, wow factor to the city, like yeah. the embankments on the uh, the sides of the Thames. So let's let's set the scene. Before Bazalgette's uh, projects, the embankments were um, – Disgusting. There's mud and poop everywhere, filthy, dead bodies. Caked with awful. Mm -hmm. O-F-F-A-L. Exactly. So what happened? Well, what happened, Ben, is that Bazalgette employed 400 draftsmen to draw up the plans for his sewer system. This is a huge, huge project. Um, And in that five-minute history article, which I really recommend you checking out. It's it's fantastic. We've pulled some things from it, but a lot of stuff we've not mentioned. Um, Bazalgette was quoted as saying, well, 
We're only going to do this once, and there's always the unforeseen. So he doubled his measurements for the size as the pipes should be mm-hmm. uh, based on the calculations he had done. And, wow, what do you know? In the 60s, if he had done it based on his original calculations, the sewer would have overflowed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Smart guy. Very smart guy. Very exacting. But let's just set the scene for what the scope of this project was. 400 sure. draftsmen to just lay out the plans. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 82 miles long. Mm-hmm. Of the main part, the main sewer system, 1,100 miles of street, I guess, runoff areas. Mm-hmm. And then there were these massive, ornate pumping stations. And these are beautiful. These these look like religious structures. And then they had water treatment centers as well. But, yeah, dude, the, the pumping stations are a thing to behold. And there are two that you can still see today. One at Crossness, um, and they had uh, steam pumps that were named after – they had really fancy names. My note here says Fancy Pants Pump Names, which were Victoria, Prince Consort, Albert Edward, and Alexandria, which were all members of the the British royal family at the time. Um, And then there's another one called Abbey Mills. Mm -hmm. And both of them have have these ornate Byzantine architecture designs. They look like – some sort of temple or something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's insane. And apparently one of them you can rent out today, the Crossness Station, which is on the south bank in Bexley. Oh, yeah. And it's for uh, what? It's for product launches. That's one of the uses, right? Yeah, there's an official website for this, and it re- they recommend that you, you give it a shot for uh, product launches, Shakespearean theater productions, um, or <laughs> making viral videos. That's the one that surprised me as well. Who sets out and says, all right, we're going to make this a viral video. It's time to, uh, time to book the location. It'd be cool for a music video. Oh, I mean, yeah, it'd be great. you know, like I said, it's gorgeous. It'd be a great setting for an action film or a thriller. Yeah, because, you know, you don't, you don't even see what the original intent was. They're just mm-hmm. these in, insanely huge structures because the pumps themselves were underneath the floor right. of, of the building itself. So when you go in, it's like, just this gorgeous space and very the, high ceilings, very high ceilings, a lot of intricate uh, marble, I want to say, and like uh, tile work and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you don't really see um, the the guts of, of what it's actually doing. Mm-hmm. And we would love to hear from you if you have visited here. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the problem wasn't solved automatically because I, I think you can tell, friends and neighbors, from the scope of this operation, it took several years for this to be completed, right? Oh, yeah. And so, you know, Rome was not built in a day, neither was Bazalgette's dream system. But as they were building this system, they noticed that there were advantages to populations and neighborhoods that were hooked up to it, and they started to pay more attention to John Snow's previously dismissed belief about contamination in water. And when we say years, we mean what? What was it? Nearly a, a decade? It was over a decade. Over a decade. Over yeah. a decade. They opened it officially, unofficially. I don't know. In 1865, Edward, Prince of Wales, had a like a ribbon cutting ceremony, mm-hmm. but it wasn't going to be finished for ten more years from that point. Right. Exactly. And as this construction was occurring, there were people in parts of London that were not part of the system that were still drinking contaminated water, encountering disease, encountering mm-hmm. cholera, mm-hmm. and In 1866, London had another cholera 
epidemic. But people noticed this epidemic occurred in an area that was not yet protected by Bazalgette's sewage system. It was in the East End, right? Mm -hmm. Spot on. And this caught the attention of someone named William Farr, who noted that the 1866 epidemic was confined to a small area of Whitechapel and said that his inquiry showed the East London Water Company's reservoirs had been contaminated. And he wrote, only a very robust scientific witness would have dared to drink a glass of water of the river. The element influencing mortality, which has undergone the greatest change in recent times, is the system of drainage. So finally, Bazalgette begins to get his due, as does your man Jon Snow. Oh, Bazalgette definitely got his due. He was knighted for his efforts in 1875. And there's a great quote from John Doxat, who is an author and historian. Um, it says, Bazalgette probably did more good and saved more lives than any single Victorian official. Uh, and based on what we're seeing here, that, that seems to be very likely entirely true. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top 
of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there's one other fascinating note that we would like to end today's show on, which is that although the experts were arguing in favor for years uh, about this concept of miasma, it sounds like the the common public and especially the satirists and cartoonists of the time were on board with the idea of water contamination way earlier than the, uh, you know, those uh, stiff collars up in parliament. We see, especially in uh, punch cartoons of the time, that there's a clear association with health and contamination of water. That's right. There was a really popular satirical magazine called Punch or the London Sharavari um, that came out starting in 1841 and was hugely influential for its political cartoons. And it does an incredible job of uh, chronicling this whole situation over the years with uh, a you know, fictional um, deity by the name of... Old Father Thames. Yes, the spirit of the river. The spirit of the river. And pre-stink, he is portrayed as this very stately, typically nude, bearded, Zeus-like figure. As it turns out, there's a lot of archaeological evidence that there were river worshippers oh, in sure. the area. There were a lot of Bronze Age artifacts recovered from the river. Pre-Christian um, times. Pre-Christian times that were seen as being offerings to some sort of river deity. Um, in 1857, there was this kind of shield that was pulled up and uh, there was like horned helmets that were found. A lot of these things are on display um, in the British Museum. But this idea of Father Thames, he was sort of this bearded, usually nude, Zeus-like figure surrounded by sea creatures, almost like a, like a, a King Triton from the Little Mermaid or something like that. But, you know, with, but with no pants. And this began to change as the river became increasingly contaminated. Boy, did it ever. Um, Father Thames that started being portrayed much more as some sort of, uh, terrifying David Lynchian hobo. Um, there's one that keeps popping up, uh, this, this comic called Father Thames Introducing His Offspring to the Fair City of London. And it has this horrifying creature with a matted black tar-covered beard and hair emerging from the river with this kind of shriveled, emaciated mermaid creature and a very skinny, malnourished child and like a zombie kind of thing coming, crawling out of the water. So it was, it was really, it was, it's, it's not really funny <laughs> satire. It's much more disturbing than that. Um, and that continued, but here's a happy ending for Father Thames. When all came around, when the sewer system was fully in place, there's a comic from 1884 that shows Father Thames as a dapper, upscale gentleman with a top hat and uh, a coat holding a trident 
doffing his cap to a gentleman with swans bathing in the background. And the caption is, Father Thames is himself again. Which is a beautiful note to end the story of London's great stink and the innovations that arose from this crisis. We do also want to mention, of course, that the problem of river pollution across the planet has not by any means been solved. Unfortunately, you can see various instances of incredibly vital river sources uh, being incredibly, and some might even add irredeemably, polluted, such as the Ganja Ganges in India, the Mississippi River here in the United States, and on and on. The good news is, however, that nowadays, thanks in large part to the efforts of people like Jon Snow, people like uh, Bazalgette, and more, we as a species are aware of the supreme importance of sanitation. And hopefully, if you are lucky enough to live near a river, lessons learned from this strange episode of history have been applied to keep your river safe and clean. That's going to wrap it up for us today, folks. As always, we would like to thank our super producer, Casey Pegram, and we'd like to thank Alex Williams for composing our soundtrack. And we'd also like to thank regular contributor Candace Gibson, who wrote uh, The Great Stink of London for How Stuff Works. Um, but most importantly, we'd like to thank you. And you can contact us directly via Instagram, the uh, Friendster. Noel, I started a Friendster. Side note, I probably should uh, run that past Casey, but he, he seems okay with it. The social media team is going to have a fit. Yes. Yes, they will have a fit. But check out our Friendster now. They're still dogging us <laughs> to make that Pinterest, and I told them no dice! <laughs> You can also find us, of course, on, on Twitter and uh, Facebook, if I didn't mention that earlier. But what do you do if you say, I have a great idea for an episode, I'd like to tell you about my experience living near a river, but I don't want to go for all that hoopla and brouhaha of the social media communication route. We have a- another way for you to reach us directly. Yeah, it's called an email, and it's uh, ridiculous at HowStuffWorks.com. Um, and we hope that you come back and hang with us next time for another episode of Ridiculous History. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wounded. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.